now we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Psalm 137? 137, it's on page 444, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. When you found that, would you stand with me and I'll read this passage together. Not at all joking with you, this is going to be kind of heavy today. But I think it's going to end well, so bear with me and, uh, and we'll get there. Psalm 137, beginning at verse 1. The author writes this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. There our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. Happy he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is God's word. I know, not many thanks be to God there. You may be seated. <laughs> it's okay. I get it. I get it. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing, his spirit to lead us in this uh, difficult, heavy text. And then we'll dig into it. Spirit of God, we come before you with the hearts that want to sit underneath the authority of your word, not those that want to stand over it in judgment, but those who submit to it and what it is that you want to teach us through it today. I believe that you've drawn each person here for a specific purpose, that you wanted them to be a part of everything we're doing today, and I believe that this is part of that. And you tell us, God, in your word, when you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. For as long as I can remember, my father has always been one of the strongest people I knew. Um, now, I know that when we're young kids, pretty much all kids think that if you know your dad and have a relationship with him, a lot of young kids, we think, man, my dad is so strong. But one of the crazy things is even as we got older, became teenagers, we still found, my brother and I, a number of times, tried to take on my dad together in wrestling matches at the same time, and he still just easily handled both of us. It was crazy. I was like, oh, who is this guy? And one of the memories I have of my dad it's so clearly in my mind but it happened so long ago now that I almost can't tell if it really happened or if I just dreamt it do you have memories like that um, then this is the memory I have I'm like eight or nine years old we're doing some kind of construction project at our house and I wanted to be helpful and so I tried to carry one of the uh, heavy bags of cement mix from the van into the garage we were doing some like sidewalk work at the front of the house and 
Have you ever tried to pick up something and then almost immediately felt like, whoa, this is way too heavy? Okay, so maybe you're just wiser than me, but normally when that happens, we put it down, right? We just like, okay, it's way too heavy. I can't do it. That's what most people do. Yeah, I didn't do that. Uh, uh, no, I, I had to try to carry it. I wanted to be the helpful child. I wanted to be the one who could, I, I don't need to put it down. And so I, I don't know how I got this thing up. I might have made it like two steps tops. And I can still remember actually like the taste of blood in my mouth. I was straining so hard until my dad looked over, saw me straining under the weight, ran over to me, lifted the bag easily out of my hands. And he said, you can give that to me now, my son. I'm 44 now. My dad still refers to me as my son. He said, you can give that to me now, my son. You, you don't need to carry that any further. I remember thinking how strong my dad was again and how glad I felt to not be carrying that heavy load anymore. So we've been in this uh, teaching series through the book of Psalms entitled Every Last Key, looking at the incredible truth there revealed to us in the Psalms that the God who made us and formed us, he wants to speak new life into every last part of us, not just those parts of us that we see as presentable. He wants all of it, good, bad, ugly. But if you were to picture your life as a house, God wants to be given the key to every last room. And we looked at, you know, a whole range of Psalms through these, these last weeks together. We've talked about how God wants us to bring him everything from our thanksgiving to our feelings of envy, uh, everything from our desire for joy to our feelings of sorrow, all kinds of things. And yet, what we're going to look at today from our passage in Psalm 137 might be the most unlikely and certainly the most difficult thing of all for us to bring to God, to bring God our anger, to bring God our anger, which I think even in suggesting that anger is something that we can bring to God, let alone something that we should bring to him, for pretty much everyone sitting here right now presents a problem because we're just like, bring your anger to God? Are you kidding me? No, no, no. Listen, I've been, up, I've been with you up until now, Pastor, and I'm sure you knew this already, but anger is wrong. That's, that's, that's something the Bible tells us to, to put away, put away anger. Uh, um, it, it's a sin to be confessed, to be asked forgiveness for. It's not something you bring to God. And yet, I know some of you here this morning heard me say God wants you to bring him your anger, and it was like hearing a key turn in the door of the prison cell you've been locked inside for years. And you were like, bring my anger to God? Really? means while some of you may be still wondering why this psalm is even in the Bible, there are others of you already who are overwhelmingly grateful it wasn't left out. And my prayer for us is that by the end of this message, we'll all be in that second category. Because here's the thing, we, we need psalms like Psalm 137 in our Bible just as much as we need psalms like Psalm 23. And the reason is because at some point in your life, pretty much everybody in here either has been or will be the victim of terrible injustice. 
And when that happens, you're going to need to know what to do with the anger that comes about as a result of that. Or like me trying to carry that heavy bag of cement mix, it will either crush you under the weight of it, or you'll take it and crush others under the weight of it. And what I'd like you to see from our passage this morning is that neither one of those things are God's desire for you. That what he wants most from you is to take that crushing weight of your anger and bring it to him. In order to help you see that, and I pray know that freedom at last in your life, I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. We're going to talk about the reality of anger and then the direction of anger. The reality and the direction of anger. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage, Psalm 137. Follow along with me as we learn about the freedom that comes from bringing your anger to God. Okay, let's look first of all at the reality of anger. The reality of anger. Now, among other things, one of the things that makes Psalm 137 so unique uh, and unique from most of the other psalms is not only its horrifying ending, but the fact that it's connected to a specific event in history. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as we've gone through this series, most of the psalms are, are really hard, if not impossible, to place historically. Where, where, when did that happen? What's he talking about? What's he referring to? We don't know. But every commentator I read agrees Psalm 137 is written in direct reference to the Babylonian exile that took place in the 6th century B.C. Uh, when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, carried off God's people with them back to Babylon. And from the strong emotion just dripping off every verse of this psalm, I think you can see that the recollection of the events that took place are still very fresh, very recent in the memory of the author. In fact, many believe that this psalm was actually written in the midst of the captivity as they were being taken away. And as the author, who appears to be one of the temple musicians who was carried off along with the others, recounts what happened that day, he writes this, beginning at verse 1. Look with me there. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is the hill on which the temple was built. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So, so really, like adding insult to injury, what's going on here is that as these captors are being led off to Babylon, presumably for the rest of their lives, the soldiers taunt them. They, they ridicule them by telling them to sing their songs of worship and praise to God as they go. Not, not at all because they want to worship along with them, but as a means, obviously, of ingraining, of just like shoving their face in the reality of the impotence, of the worthlessness of this God of Israel to protect them from the might and power of Babylon and its gods. Which isn't actually all that dissimilar to what you see a lot of times in, in sports. Uh, when one team has been victorious over another, you know, the kind of trash talking that takes place. People will be like, hey, hey, what was that you were saying again about how you were going to wipe the floor with us again? Yeah, how did that work out? Say it again. Oh, oh, you, look at the scoreboard. Check it out. Or, or maybe could you get your uh, cheerleaders and your band out here again? Could we get another chorus of that song of how your, your team is so much better than everyone's? We'd like to hear it play as we get our picture taken with the trophy. That happens all the time. I mean, that's what you do in sports. But if you look at the 
words of verse 3 in particular there, you see that more than just a mocking request, the Babylonian soldiers, they are demanding these songs of joy. They sing these songs of praise that would have only been sung in temple worship. They're saying, sing it and sing it now. This was not a, a simple taunting optional suggestion. Charles Spurgeon uh, notes in his commentary on these verses, he says, Worse than the Egyptians, they asked not for labor, which their victims could have rendered, but they demanded mirth, which they could not give, and holy songs, which they dared not profane to such a purpose. Clearly, more than conquering them physically alone, the Babylonian soldiers meant to conquer these Israelite prisoners psychologically as well. You, you are done. You are powerless and you're ours now. And yet look at the response. Look at the response the psalmist records in verses 4 through 6. It says, How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May, may it, it wither. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. These are the musicians, right? The temple musicians. And they are just saying, if I actually go through with this, may my hand wither up and may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth so I can't sing. Which means ultimately, rather than giving in or abandoning loyalty to Jerusalem or to their God just to avoid further suffering, they defiantly refuse. They refuse to sing a single word or play a single note. I mean, if you look at the sense of his question in verse there. It's one of just angry incredulity, equating acquiescence, surrender to this mocking request from their captors with forgetting both their homeland as well as their God and the songs that were intended to praise him. If I do that, I've, I've forgotten. I've turned my back on those things. And they say, there's no way. I'm not doing it. And as it relates to bringing God your anger, I think one of the first things that you can learn from this psalm is the way the psalmist acknowledges the reality of his anger. He acknowledges the reality of it. Notice, he doesn't redefine anger. He doesn't explain it away. Nor does he allow the awful circumstances that they're experiencing right now to lead him to disloyalty or to despondency. No, instead, he maintains his hold on the reality of this is not just. This is not just what's happened to us. And he refuses to participate in this further mistreatment in an act of angry protest, regardless of the consequences. I don't care what you do to me. I'm not going through with this. Which I think, in our modern Western context, this is hard for us to really get a hold of, to understand, to even process a psalm like 137, this idea of acknowledging the reality of anger. Many of us, we just really struggle with this, and I think the reason is because for a lot of us, we've grown up in homes and churches where the spoken or certainly the unspoken assumption is that anger is something that is evil in and of itself and that it should have no place in the life of a Christian. Many of us grew up in, in homes like that and in churches like that. And here's what I tell you about that, honestly. In a lot of cases, that's true, actually. That's, that's absolutely right. And I say that because, think about it, come on, a lot of the things, a lot of the stuff that we get so angry about is, is it's foolish. 
it's stupid, minuscule stuff that has way more to do with your pride than it does to do with any actual injustice. Like, like if, you're, if you're just angry and ready to ram the car in front of you because you got somewhere to be and they're just driving the speed limit, if you're, if you're shouting and chucking stuff around the house because your sports team didn't win, if you're losing it on your kids because they don't want to live out the dreams that you couldn't achieve as a child yourself, that, that's not injustice to be angry about. That's sin that needs to be confessed and repented of. But here's the thing. What just assuming anger to be solely evil does is it ignores the incredible nuance required in a discussion of something like anger. Not to mention numerous scriptures that speak about the anger as a necessary emotion as well as an integral part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Ever thought of that? For in the opening chapters of Genesis, we learn God made all human beings, male and female, in his image. And while maybe many of you would agree with that, sadly what many of us have tended to do over the years, unconsciously or not, is equated being made in the image of God with only some of his characteristics of what his nature is like while completely excluding others. And the reality is that along with being loving, uh, creative, forgiving, relational, God is also holy. God is also just. And in order to be both loving and just at the same time in particular, it requires God to be angry at injustice, or he is neither loving nor just. So when you think about Jesus, for example, Jesus, who is said to be the exact representation of God in human flesh, in Mark 3, for example, his reaction to the religious rulers, when uh, he questions them about healing a man on the Sabbath, and they're like, well, I don't know, I don't have an answer. And Jesus, we, we're told, Jesus looked at them in anger, grieved at their stubbornness of heart. What about Mark 11, when Jesus uh, comes into Jerusalem and sees the temple turned into a marketplace, he starts chucking over tables and driving out the money changers with a whip. I mean, you've got, you got to do something with those texts. You've got to do something with them as well as it relates to your understanding of the nature and character of God, as well as what it means, that, what is the implication? How does that apply to the fact that you're made in his image? Jesus is showing us what the Father is like, and that's a part of what the Father is like. And in fact, the very gospel message in which we hope reveals a God who is angry at sin which has infested his good creation, which has separated us from relationship with him. But because he loves you and me so much, he pours out the full measure of his wrath against sin on his son instead of you and me. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, that's a word that means to turn aside wrath. When Jesus comes, he stands in the way of God's wrath against sin and diverts it away from us and takes it on himself. He goes on, this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God, he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I don't know, I think, I think we, we look at the past, we, we look at history, and we often feel like we're so much more advanced now. We're so much farther along than those ancient, simple people like the psalm writer. You know, we, we've moved on. We're so much more just 
put together, and, and, and in a lot of ways, that's true. I mean, certainly technologically, we're further along. And yet, as I read Psalm 137, I don't know about you, but I am just struck. I get this sense from the straightforward simplicity of it that just feels like something that I knew a long time ago, but I've forgotten. This very simple idea that when bad things happen, it's okay to feel angry about that. When did we, when did we forget that? That in a very real sense, actually, I'm out of touch with reality. If I can't acknowledge the reality of the anger I feel produced by the injustice committed against me. If I'm just explaining, oh, no, no, I'm not angry. I'm fine. It's fine. I'll just forgive. You're out of touch with reality, actually. So undoubtedly. There are regularly occurring feelings and expressions of anger in all of our lives that need to be exposed for, for the prideful foolishness they are and repent of us. Yes and amen. I'm not denying that for a second. And yet, what I'm saying as it relates to acknowledging the reality of the anger, of the anger we feel, and what I believe this psalm is getting at as well, is that in the face of true injustice, in the face of, of abuse, of cruelty, of malice, it is an image-defacing theology that suggests the feelings of anger about such things are somehow wrong or misplaced for the follower of Jesus. I believe that's an image-defacing theology. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but I pray that, that that is something that's already bringing hope to you here this morning. If you've been struggling for years under the idea that you couldn't be angry about the abuse that was committed against you, about the injustice that you suffered, to see at last that acknowledging the reality of the anger you feel against sin and injustice, being angry about what makes God angry, not trying to define it away or explain it away, is to reflect the image of God. Just as much uh, as expressions of love or forgiveness or communion. It's all part of his image. He's angry at injustice. Okay, so that's the reality of anger. But as it relates to that same need for nuance that I just mentioned, I think I'd be doing us a great disservice if we didn't also consider uh, what our passage, as well as other scriptures, have to say about what to do with that anger that we've now acknowledged, the reality of. What do we do with it? Because if you've ever felt anger like this, either from experiencing injustice yourself or seeing it committed against someone you know and love, you'll know that anger, it's not this static thing that just stays in one place. It doesn't stay neatly boxed away where you put it. No, no, anger is, is a living thing. It's like a, a flame that needs to be directed properly or it can easily consume both the one feeling the anger as well as the people who have caused you to feel it. So let's look lastly at the direction of anger. The direction of anger. Some of you might remember a story from not that long ago out of the West Nickel Mines School in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It was just after recess on October 2nd, 2006, when Charles Carl Roberts entered into the Amish schoolhouse there. And after releasing everyone but the 10 female students, ages 6 through 13, Roberts barricaded the schoolhouse door. He lined up those students against the chalkboard facing the wall. And before taking his own life, he shot eight of the ten girls 
five of whom did not survive. I can't even imagine the grief, the anger, the fear created by such a thing. To go to school in one morning and not come home. Unquestionably, this is some of the greatest evil, injustice that could be committed either against those individual students, their families, or even that Amish community. And yet, if you read this story or heard about it, the action that everyone who heard this tragedy was, was baffled by, almost as much as the horrific act itself, was the response of the Amish community to that horrific act. What the reports reveal is that within hours of the shooting, Amish neighbors had already gone to Robert's home to comfort his wife and parents and offer forgiveness to them. Later, the community actually set up a charitable fund for the family in order to get back on their feet. And members of the community even attended Robert's funeral. How's that even possible? How, how's that possible to do, let alone do with any sincerity? I'm sure a lot of you, you're hearing me saying this right now, you're asking even the question, okay, wow, that's incredible, but... Isn't that the very anger-denying, image-defacing mindset you were just criticizing? Um, where do we see the Amish community acknowledging their anger anywhere? And the answer is that their response to this grave injustice that destroyed their little ones was not at all to deny the reality of the anger they felt. Their response was to direct it. They directed the anger that they felt. And where you see them doing that is not actually in the actions, but you hear it in the responses that they gave to a number of the reporters. They would say things like, this man, Roberts, he had a mother and a wife and a soul, and listen, and now he's standing before a just God. Now he's standing before a just God. Do you hear it? They weren't denying the reality of their anger for a second. They were simply directing it to a holy and just God who they knew to be just as angry about sin and injustice as they were. They were directing their very real anger upwards and leaving it in God's hands, leaving the judgment to him. And if you look at our passage, you see that that's exactly what the psalmist does in the midst of the injustice that he and the people of Israel experienced both from the Babylonian invaders who destroyed their city and crushed their little ones, as well as uh, the Edomites who cheered on the Babylonians as they invaded Jerusalem. Let's look at verses 7 through 9 quickly again and just talk for a minute about what he says here. He, he writes, verse 7, Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. Happy he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Clearly, what they had experienced as they were taken into captivity. Two things to note there. First of all, rather than respond like you'd expect, uh, telling the people that he's writing to, telling the readers of this psalm to remember, saying, listen, never forget what they did to us. Never forget it. 
Never forget what the Babylonians did, what the Edomites did to us on that day. Jerusalem fell, directing uh, his anger outward against them and swearing to get even one day. The psalmist prays his anger and directs it to God. You see, he says, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did. He's saying, saying, you remember this, Lord. He's not talking to the readers. He's talking to God. You remember it. And then the second thing to note is that that word remember at the beginning of verse 7 doesn't mean just recalling information. In the Hebrew, uh, uh, to recall information like this, when it talks about remembering, it's recalling information with the purpose of acting on it. As one commentator noted in another place where, where God says, I will remember my covenant with Abraham. It doesn't mean God's saying, oh, right, I made that covenant 500 years ago. Sorry, guys. He doesn't mean remember. He means he's going to be faithful to carry out the promise that he made. That's what he means by remember. So he's saying, God, you remember here. You act as I bring this to you. You act against this injustice that's being committed against you. And what that shows us is that the psalmist is not simply complaining to God. He is essentially bringing evidence before a divine court and entrusting the judgment for these terrible uh, injustices committed against him into his hands. He's saying, I know that you're the judge. You are angry at injustice, and you will bring justice. I can trust you to bring justice here, God. Which is something essential, essential for us to understand and to put into practice once we've come to the place where we've acknowledged the reality of our anger. Because here's the thing, for many of us, our anger very often tends to move in only one of two directions. It moves outwards or inwards. That's the way our anger usually tends to go. So either our anger moves outwards against those who've treated us unjustly and your life just becomes consumed with this idea of getting back, paying back that abuser for what they did to me. I'm going to make sure I'm not going to rest. You dashed our little ones. I'm not going to rest until your little ones are dashed. That's, that's an, an outward expression of anger. For others, maybe due to just a milder temperament or because we've just been socially conditioned neither to act nor to acknowledge our anger, our anger just goes inward. It just becomes this cancer inside of us that just eats away, that imprisons us, that poisons and distorts every aspect of our lives, and we just carry it around as these angry, despondent people. But what you learn from Psalm 137 is that after acknowledging the reality of your anger, it doesn't need to move in either of those directions. It doesn't need to move outward or inward. There's a third option, actually, where you can direct that anger upwards to God and direct it up to Him. Just hear me. That, it doesn't mean that the feelings of anger go away. It doesn't mean that the injustice that happened against you disappears. But what it does do is free you from the destructive consequences, both of inward and outward directions of anger, as well as providing us, listen, with the one hope for justice that any of us has for it to be truly carried out. As you lay your anger at injustice before a judge who truly sees all and whose very nature is to bring all sin to justice. It means you can lay that burden before him with the certainty that justice will be carried out. No, nobody's, nobody's getting away with anything. 
whether that takes place in this life or the next. Justice will be carried out against that injustice committed against it. That's, that's why you can direct it to him. I don't know where this finds you this morning as we're talking about these really heavy things. I, I know for some of you, the very idea of God as an angry judge is just this awful, repulsive thing to you, just some kind of archaic view of God used to control and intimidate people that just needs to be abandoned. I hear that all the time. I could never believe in a God like that. And yet, if that's where you're at, I don't, I don't presume to know your life, and yet I believe that that's a perspective very likely born out of a life that has yet to experience any real true injustice. You experience abuse. Be defrauded by someone. Be grossly violated in some way. And suddenly the idea of a God who is angry at sin and who will bring it to justice is not nearly so hard to imagine. In fact, it becomes the one branch on which you hold on to hope. I've read this quote before, but Miroslav Volf, an author and theologian who lived through the atrocities of war in his own homeland, said it this way in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He said, violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captives, captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be just, nor worthy of our worship. For others, you, you know the pain and crushing weight of injustice all too well in your life. And because you've either denied the reality of anger in your life all these years against injustice or because you've only directed it inwards or outwards, you've lived inside a, a prison cell from the moment that that injustice was committed against you. And if that's where you're at this morning, I pray that the hope of Psalm 137 would shine a bright light into the darkness of that prison cell. That, that like me, you're now incredibly glad that this psalm wasn't edited out of the Bible because of its harsh content. As you come to see through it that your anger against the injustice committed against you is not something to be denied or hidden, but something that reflects the very nature of God in whose image you were made. And my prayer for you today is that as you, in a step of hopeful obedience, direct that anger that you feel this morning towards God, not outwards or inwards anymore, but upwards to the perfect, holy, loving judge of the universe that you might feel his strong, strong hand lift that heavy burden from your heart. And that you might hear your father's voice say to you, you can give that to me now, my child. You don't need to carry it any further.